Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I have with me Ben Frazier. Ben is the Chief Investment Officer at Aspen Funds and co-host of the Invest Like a Billionaire podcast, where he combines his analytical nature with a passion for delivering outstanding client service and strong returns through out-of-the-box investments. With a professional background that spans over a decade, Ben has become an expert in the field of investment management and has worked for several reputable financial institutions. Ben, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Brian. Yeah. And like we were talking about, I was just on your show with your dad last week, and it's always fun to do a swap. And you guys asked some really good questions. So I'm excited to turn the tables on you and, and get your thoughts. Like we talked about when we, we met at lunch a couple of weeks ago in your hometown, Kansas City, you all are very different than most real estate investors that I bump up against. Honestly, you're very macro, thematic, thoughtful folks. And we're going to get into a lot of this, but I'm curious, did that come from like your dad or just your intellectual curiosity or how did you have that top down approach? Because frankly, most of the real estate people kind of work exactly the opposite in in sponsoring land. So, Yeah, absolutely. So the way that we work at Aspen Funds is what we call macro-driven alternative investments. And so what you just said is exactly right. We look first at the bigger macro trends going on and really start with a top-down approach and then look for strategies and asset classes that we think are going to be well-supported by the bigger trends going on, right? And a lot of a lot of thinking from investors is that you can't time the market. That's been the mantra that's been drilled into people's heads that just always buy and hold, right? And the reality is if you break down bigger cycles of different asset classes, there are better times to buy and there are worse times to buy, right? And to be invested in a certain asset class. And we had this kind of discussion in the last podcast when you're on ours, but that that really started I would say probably with with my my dad going through a lot of different cycles. And he actually was a tech entrepreneur prior to investment management about 25, 30 years ago. 
and really saw this firsthand. He was raising capital on the front end of the uh, tech boom in the late 90s. And basically anything that had a dot com at the end of it just soared to the roof, right? And it was, could it not win, right? And then after the tech wreck happened in 2001, if you had a dot com with an name, it didn't matter how good it was, how many paying customers you had, it was, no one wanted to talk about it, right? Everyone wanted to rid their hands of it. And so it was this idea that timing matters and knowing where you're at in the cycle is really, really important. And as investors, we, we've made the case, a lot of other sponsors, operators start with the bottom-up approach. So they can maybe get into single family, they graduate into small multifamily, and then graduate into whatever their asset class and kind of keep building from the ground up and they start vertically integrating. So they're adding now property management, maybe construction management, asset management, acquisitions. They're building this whole big team, this whole big payroll and overhead. And there's some pros and cons to vertical integration. And some of that is just operational efficiencies. You can generate a little bit of extra alpha by consolidating some of those cost centers. But the reality is it's a lot more meaningful to pick the right asset class that's going to outperform over the next decade than just try and get a 10% cost savings in an asset class that's going to be struggling. Right. And I think investors, it's really important to take a step back and understand what are the bigger trends that are driving the economics and the in the supply and demand of the asset class I'm investing in. And that is what we believe a much bigger driver of overall investment performance than vertical integration or just fine-tuning within a broader, maybe secular bull market or a bear market in a particular asset class. Yeah. And I think there's some confusion there. You pointed out about how most investors just say buy and hold. And over a long period of time, that's right. But still, even very conservative kind of investment managers will say an annual kind of reallocation is warranted, right? To take advantage of these sure. different periods and, and cycles. So picking the right product type in the right cycle does matter. So before we get into that on the granular side, let's talk about how you all see the world today. We're in an inflation-driven era. I think we're on the same page in terms of volatility, deglobalization a world that seems to be fracturing in many ways. Maybe paint a picture of how you're seeing things from a global perspective and then we'll drill down from there. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th I think the world we live in right now is, is very unique in the sense that things are changing very quickly, right? We've uh, now just experienced the fastest interest rate hike in history in the US. And that's going to have some pretty big consequences that ripple through investing in the economy. And it still remains to be seen how you know, far those consequences extend. But just to, to make the point again, it's cycles matter, timing matters. And tech was a really good place to be in the late 90s, not a great place to be early 2000s. Single family housing was a really good place to be in 05, 06, 07, not a great place to be in 08, 09. Multifamily has been the asset class of choice for most kind of passive investors over the past decade. And it's the past several years, 19 to 21, really, really good. We saw prices just skyrocket, right? Well, right now it's really hard to make deals happen. It's really hard to make deals pencil. And so it's just, again, furthers the point that that timing really matters. And I think right now, because so many investors have been in multifamily, and to be clear, we're still semi-bullish on multifamily in the right markets and the right types of investing strategies, but it's changed. And right now things are in this kind of period of transition and it's more important now than ever to understand the things that are going on and to position yourself accordingly. So when things are smooth sailing, 
and everything is going up and to the right, it's pretty easy to be complacent or just to be happy with the performance because everything is going up. But right now, I think we're going to see some pretty big dislocation in certain asset classes. We're seeing, I think the interest rate increases are going to impact it. So I think from our perspective at this point, we are positioning for inflation being with us for a longer period of time than maybe the market is expecting right now. And because of that, the Fed will, what we believe is likely going to uh, hold interest rates higher, at least higher than they were pre-COVID era in more of a normalized state. And so that that's going to impact commercial real estate values. It's going to impact how deals are looked at going forward. And so I think there's going to be a I don't want to say reversion to the mean in some senses, but there was definitely some aggressive buying the past several years that's going to be slowing down. But we could talk more about that if, if you want. But yeah, let, let's get into the inflation conversation. So, do you believe that we are now in a new era of inflation in terms of looking back, we were in this hyper low rate environment, right? Zero rate environment. Do you think when you say normalized, what does that mean? Like, what numbers are we looking at? And, and how long do you think? that part of the cycle continue? Yeah. So I, I think monetary policy right now is really being driven by what the headline inflation numbers are doing or projected to be doing. So I think understanding what's driving inflation and how long those drivers are going to be in play is really, really important to understand because it's going to impact monetary policy and then strategy going forward. And so if you break down CPI, what are the bigger components that, that are driving the higher rate of inflation. Well, a lot of it is uh, wage growth. So we're seeing really a big labor shortage, which is something we've talked a lot about on our podcast for the past couple of years. Post-COVID, a lot of workers just, just left the workforce, a lot of skilled workers. And so there's been this huge gap. And you know, meanwhile, the, the Fed's trying to slow down the economy by increasing interest rates, but we're still seeing employment in extremely, extremely high numbers. Unemployment is very, very, very low. And that's going to continue to drive wage growth, which is going to continue to be keeping a CPI high. If you look at some of the other bigger kind of trends going on, and this is something we've talked about a little bit offline here, but deglobalization, where a lot of manufacturing, warehousing is coming back to the US from overseas because of the kind of supply chain disruptions, really the potentially over-globalization of the past 40 years, that's actually very inflationary, right? If we're bringing back these jobs and putting capital investment into manufacturing facilities into the US where maybe labor costs are a little bit higher, but the overall supply chain, logistics, transportation, everything else kind of normalizes. It's still pretty inflationary. So we think that's going to we're at the beginning of this, this longer term trend of uh, reshoring and re-inventorying in the US. La- just last year in 2022, we saw over $1 trillion of investment and focus in the US on reshoring. And and I think it's just beginning. Then the other kind of big driver of inflation, at least end of last year and last summer, 2022, was energy prices, right? We had a huge spike of energy prices in the uh, summer of 2022, and that kind of bled into the fall. We are pretty bullish on energy prices. We think there is going to be some pretty potential crisis uh, in energy uh, because the lack of reinvestment into new production uh, domestically has dropped by over 50% over the last seven years. And it's being driven a lot by just the ESG narratives that's trying to disincentivize investment into fossil fuel production and renewables. But the reality is they're just, they're not where they need to be, the renewables that is. And uh, fossil fuels are, they're they're absolutely needed for, for this kind of period of transition. And 
they're reducing supply by trying to create disincentive. And right now we're not seeing the demand uh, with the potential recession on the horizon where it has been historically, but pr- demand is actually projected to increase over the next several years, uh, despite all the pushes to, to decrease the fossil fuel consumption. And so we actually think energy prices are poised to go up quite a bit over the next year or two, and probably even for the next decade, as, as are a lot of other banks and uh, big investment banks calling for that. So if you take the sum of all these factors, right, labor shortage, reshoring, and energy shortages, every single one of those is very inflationary. And if you look at the long-term goal of the Fed, it's to keep inflation around that 2% number. We're right about, I think right now, 4 to 5%. While it doesn't sound that far off, that's, a, it's, that's really far off the mark. And I think they're going to have a very difficult time cooling the economy enough to get it back to that 2% average GDP growth number. So all that to say, I, I think we're in for some major turbulence. I think we're in for inflation being with us for a longer period of time than, than the Fed or probably anyone really hopes for. And consequently, borrowing costs are going to be higher for longer. Right. And that's the next logical question, right, is I agree with you. I think inflation will be persistent, sticky, very challenging for all the reasons you mentioned, deglobalization, reshoring. I think the demographic issue in America is really challenging as these baby boomers yep leave the marketplace. There aren't enough Gen Xers to take those positions, just not a big enough generation. And so that's creating more wage growth and and driving that higher and higher. It's continued to be an issue, I think, for us, especially in professional services, financial services positions. So yeah, what do you think that means in terms of borrowing costs, right? For for real estate perspective, when you're putting together your capital stack, we've seen a 2X raise probably in the last 12 months for us in terms of borrowing costs. Where do you forecast that out in the near, medium, and long term? Yeah, I, I think we're pretty close to the top. I mean, hopefully <laughs> from from an interest rate increase standpoint, that seems to be the the positioning of the Fed right now. So I think where we're at right now is probably close to the top. Maybe there's one or two more interest rate hikes, but I don't think you know anyone's expecting anything more than that. But what I what I think's gonna be interesting is a lot of the market is pricing in interest rate cuts going into 2024 and I don't I don't know if I see that I mean if we have a, a, a recession that's definitely possible right that's going to be the first first thing the Fed does but I, I do think if you've taken if, if you buy into all the things we just talked about on the inflationary pressures it's going to keep that pressure on the Fed to maintain a, a more balanced economy and not let inflation get away from us and so I think for the past 10 to 15 years, we've become accustomed to this really, really cheap capital. And I don't think it's going to be as cheap as it has been, even when things normalize a little bit more because of these other just underlying pressures that are being built up. And so even if, as we get through kind of this initial rate hike and maybe potential recession and a dip and a slowdown of the economy, even with things come back to normal, quote unquote, after that, I, I still think we're going to see higher borrowing costs because of those inflationary pressures. And so I think that begs the question from an investor standpoint, how do you position yourself? How do you, how do you make smart decisions? What types of investments are you looking at? Because what's interesting, what we're even seeing like in several asset classes that we follow and that we're participating in, we're still seeing a massive amount of demand from an investment standpoint, especially institutional demand. For example, say self-storage is an asset class we like. It's very inflation protected, limited supply and growing demand. So great, great asset class. But the problem is there's so much excess demand from an investor standpoint that the cap rates are still extremely low. So I was 
talking with a friend of mine who operates one of the larger self-storage companies in the country. And they're, they're seeing some of these big institutional buyers coming in and buying at say a four cap or four and a half cap all cash, right? Because at, at that at that level of cap rate, they're a negative leverage. I'm about to say, yeah, meeting. that's a negative leverage deal probably in today's market. Yeah. Yeah. So in your bars or your uh, listeners are you're very sophisticated, but basically that just means your unlevered expected cash return, which is your cap rate, is lower than what you're paying on your debt, right? So that means every all the the debt that you add onto the, the the project is not contributing value on the upside, unless you believe, hey, we can outgrow on the top line and debt borrowing costs come down over time. So that, that that's the bet that a lot of bigger players are making. And in the long term, I think that that's definitely we're going to see borrowing costs come down. But I don't know in the short term if we will. Yeah, I mean all those factors that you listed about driving inflation. The flip side of that conversation or the kind of the corollary is I think the U.S. domestic real estate continues to be the most attractive place to put capital long-term in a world that is becoming more volatile and scarier place in general, which means valuations are going to continue to be subdued because to your point, there's just massive capital allocations are going to be made. And so it does create a bit of an odd dynamic. I think especially international capital is going to continue to flee some of these other places across the world. So it's a bit of a confusing landscape from that perspective when you tie in where borrowing costs are, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's the conundrum of it's maybe not the best time to be investing in some of these asset classes given cap rates haven't really reverted, but at the same time, it's better than everything else that you have available to invest in. I tell people that ask me about where to allocate today, you know, bigger families. And, and I think it's just a function of what your return profile is and what your time horizon is. Because if you have a long enough time horizon and if your return profile is limited, it's a great time to allocate, right? You shouldn't worry right. too much about it, in my opinion. But if you're a private equity fund that's trying to hit a certain IRR and you've got a two, three-year deployment window, very challenging environment, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, agreed. I think time time horizon drives a lot of the investment thesis, right? And so what we're really l- looking for right now, and because I agree with you, I'm still very bullish on many sectors in the commercial real estate and even residential real estate market. And a lot of that is driven market by market, right? As we all know, real estate is not one market. It's the combination of lots and lots of markets. But we're still very bullish on several asset classes and several uh, markets and growth stories. And I think there's going to be some anomalies that ride through potential turbulence. And so we're still looking for those opportunities. And I think you're saying, saying the kind of big picture landscape, it's important to understand the dynamics going on. But I also think there's going to be some pretty incredible opportunities that arise, right? If if we do start seeing some turbulence and we're already starting to see some headlines of some pretty big deals and REITs and other things that are the debt's maturing and they haven't had their business plan and they're handing the keys back to the lenders, right? If we start seeing more and more of that, that potentially creates an excess supply of distressed deals in the market. Well, that'd be a really good time to go buy, right? Because if you believe in the long-term demand for some of these asset classes, housing, I mean, we're, I still believe we have a massive shortage of housing over the long haul and we're not building enough, we're not building fast enough for the demand that over time will demand it. The reshoring trend, I think, is the beginning of a pretty big trend. And we're seeing a lot of completions in industrial and a lot of markets, meaning the amount of new projects that are coming online in the market over the next 12 to 18 months is really, really high. 
But if you look at new completion starts, so new development that's starting right now, it's dropped. I think I saw a number today, just 60% uh, year over year. So huge drop off. So maybe we have a big glut of inventory. And I think this is a, a story in a lot of different asset classes, multifamily, industrial, potentially housing. And we're going to have a lot of inventory that might take a little while to be absorbed in the market, but there's this huge gap that I think is going to be created through the slowdown here of, of the next last quarter or the next couple of quarters. If borrowing remains high, a lot of people pulling out of the market. And so I think there's going to be this kind of catch up period. And then we're still in the same boat that we, we were in a couple of years ago. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. So I couldn't help but reflect on Sam Zell passing away before this conversation. You talk about dislocations, cycles, and timing. Talk about a guy that hit the timing perfectly. Right? I mean, he nailed it. Do you think there'll be deals like that? Do you think there will be opportunities for massive wealth creation if you get the timing right in the cycle? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think if we have inflation continue to remain high, there's there's not a better way to protect against inflation than real estate, right? Especially residential and the types of real estate that adjust quicker than longer term leases. But any type of real estate on the right market and in the right asset class, I think we're going to see just doing nothing else, right? If you can hold on to the property and ride through the potential bubble and the, the the turbulence and the debt side of things, you're going to come out in a good position, right? And which is, again, part of the reason for the whole thesis, right? If you can pick the timing right, if you can pick the right asset classes at the right time, it doesn't matter if a few things go wrong in a deal or some things that you couldn't plan for happen, right? You're going to be saved by the, the economic tailwinds that are supporting and, and driving a lot of the, the growth and extra help, right? And, and so that, that's kind of our, our focus is we want, if, we, if we nail the kind of big picture tides right, it's going to save a lot of heartache through the intermediate cycles, right? And I think right now, the, the biggest thing that we focus on, the biggest thing that on every deal we're doing, every deal we're looking at, it's the debt, right? And it, you have to make sure you get the debt right. You have good terms. You're conservative in your underwriting. You, have, you make sure you understand your maturities and your schedule of when the debt comes due and be able to service that. And I, I do think right now we're just building a lot of extra reserves in every deal we're doing. So we're, we are doing several development deals. I'm actually pretty bullish in development and for some of the reasons I mentioned. So we're just being extra conservative, but right now there's enough margin to where those deals can sustain it. And I think making it, making it through the next you know, 12 to 18 months, if you can come out on the other side of it, you're going to look back and be in a pretty good position because of inflation. Stay alive till 25. <laughs> yeah. is is what we've been saying internally on some of the assets that we have. And I think a lot of sponsors are in that same mindset. So maybe give us, I know we talked, you talked about housing shortage. You talked about this reshoring, which will create this tailwind for industrial. Could you get a little bit more specific on kind of product type, sector, geographic area, like how you're allocating to those opportunities that you see? Yeah. So for the the industrial uh, in particular, which is really, we've seen a pretty massive run up in prices and values over the past decade, really because of e-commerce, right? As e-commerce has driven a lot of growth and the kind of distribution centers, that's been a great story. And I think it's going to continue, but I don't think at the same 
pace of growth. I think where the, the bigger opportunity that we're seeing is being driven by this reshoring trend. So what, what does that mean? Well, what we, what we saw during the COVID era, and we all experienced this, right? The you know, so supply chain shortages, supply chain issues was the, the common refrain that everyone was talking about. And what I think happened is when I was in school, the big, big concept that was being drilled into our heads was globalization and just-in-time inventory and creating this kind of perfect logistical system that whenever you need something at a push of a button, you reverse engineer the supply chain and it gets to you right when you need it. And it's very actually disinflationary because you can outsource the manufacturing to an area where it's cheaper. The globe, you can not have to hold inventory because you can have it arrive right when you need it. And so it was very, very efficient. It drove down prices in a lot of areas. But what, what happened is during COVID, we had all of this disruption of supply chain, right? And we saw that, that we have actually an over-reliance on a lot of other countries and actually some countries we probably don't want to have as much of a reliance on, right? Because of their societal and political regimes. In Ford, uh, auto manufacturing is a great example. They have a massive amount of, of inventory of trucks, even still now, that are just sitting on parking lots that they cannot sell. The last time I checked earlier this year, they had about $5 billion worth of inventory that they couldn't sell because they didn't have the little chips that went into the computer system. And, and they get those predominantly from Taiwan. Yeah, I, I tried and, to get an F-150 electric like a couple months ago and 250,000 people on the wait list. They're not accepting more people on the wait list. And I would have paid a premium, but they they literally cannot process this in time. It's crazy. It is crazy. And it's it's not, yeah, it's not getting, you'd think it'd be solved by now. They figure out they have so much demand for this and it's like, hey, you could figure it out. But the, the, the challenge is the, these types of things, they take a while to really get through a system and materialize, right? So if you have to bring chip manufacturing back to the US, that's a long period of time to get the permits and entitlements and to do the development and build the manufacturing and hire the workers and build the whole process, right? So it's, it's going to take some time, but I think the the calculus that all these companies are doing now is realizing, hey, we need to have manufacturing of critical components like the, these chips where we can control them. And we also probably need to carry more inventory than we have before instead of just you know having just arrived just in time. And Ford is not alone in this. This is happening all across the country with all these different bigger manufacturers. And then on top of that, you add in the potential energy crisis and there, there's no better place to be than America with the fossil fuel reserves that we have and Europe especially right now. They don't, they don't have the same level of reserves as natural gas and oil. They have to import most of it. And that's a pretty big risk if you're in a manufacturing heavy energy intensive industry like manufacturing because it's a very big cost component of the whole process. And that's also coming to the calculus, right? So you add all these things and we're seeing a lot of companies, like I mentioned, $1 trillion just last year was spent in companies recalibrating their uh, supply chains, bringing a lot of manufacturing, bringing a lot of inventory back to the US. And again, I think we're just at the beginning stages of that. So how does that inform our investment thesis? What most of these companies are looking for is generally going to be big box industrial. We've talked a little bit about your guys' strategy in the flex industrial, which I'm also bullish on. Our take is a little bit different. We're, we're generally developing large class A properties speculatively and then leasing them up to tenants in, in hot markets. So we're looking at markets that have a pretty big base generally of and manufacturing. So a good blue collar skilled labor force is, is a big bonus. We don't want to see too much completions as a percent of the total market coming to market the next year or two. So we don't want a, an oversupply happening. We want to see vacancy rates and absorptions be really, really strong. 
And I think we're also shifting, not that we're opposed to gateway markets, which has driven a lot of the industrial and warehousing as there we're importing a lot, but looking more in other markets that are more Midwest or even kind of Southern markets that will, as our relationship with Mexico as a trading partner continues to, to grow, that can benefit from that. So we're looking a little bit differently than maybe we probably would have even a couple of years ago, the types of markets we're going after. But those are the things that are driving and informing our investment thesis in that, in that sector. Yeah, I, I agree with all of it. And I think it makes a ton of sense. And one of the reasons we like medical office as well for the, a lot of that dynamics you spelled out. I want to pivot a little bit here as we kind of wind down the conversation. The podcast you have, Invest Like a Billionaire, it's a really cool premise. And you've done a bunch of these conversations. Have you seen any kind of themes or fact patterns consistently across people's thinking in terms of how they're investing and how they're allocating? Yeah. So our podcast, Invest Like a Billionaire, our whole thesis there is that the ultra wealthy, the billionaires, the family offices, they invest differently than the average retail investor. And this is something very well. And it's something that I think the average investor has the access to these types of alternatives is becoming more available through regulation changes, through just general education around investing in these asset types. We think the retail capital coming into the market is going to continue to grow. We've already seen that, that, that trend really massively reallocating capital to these types of investments. And so we want to help educate investors around these types of investments. But I think your question is, how do they think differently? And I think it's a few things. In talking with, with some of these bigger investors and folks that work with these you know, types of institutional investors and family offices, the really big difference, I think, generally comes down simply to what's your goal? What, what's your ultimate purpose with trying to, are you trying to grow wealth? Are you trying to generate income? Are you trying to preserve wealth? Right. And you, you start first, like we're starting with the investment themes. You got to start first with what, what's your personal investment theme? What's your personal investment goal? And that, that will drive the allocation from there. Right. Because there's certain asset classes and types of strategy like development. You're not getting any cash flow for, for a little while. Right. So if you're a cash flow investor, you need cash flow. You don't want to be heavy into development projects. But if you are looking to, to grow wealth or preserve wealth, you're going to invest a little bit differently. And so I think we, one of the research kind of data points that we follow every quarter is some publishing materials from Tiger 21, which is a big ultra high net worth investing group. And they have, I, I forget, maybe I think a thousand investors in their, their membership. You have to have an investable assets of over $20 million. And they publish quarterly the kind of portfolio allocation an aggregate of all these investors and how it changes over time. And the reality is that it doesn't change that dramatically much quarter to quarter. I think there's different preferences and positionings, but it's really 50% of it plus, actually probably think it's 70% is in private alternatives. I mean, that's that's just the reality. And yeah, they have some, some exposure to the public equity markets and, and public bond markets. It's good to have diversification, but I love, I love what you said the other day. I think it's so profound, right? The, the way that you grow wealth is by consolidating your net worth and, and reducing diversification and making bets on, on either your business that you're in or, or, or investments that you're making. And that's a way to create asymmetrical returns on, on growth. But then if you're trying to preserve wealth, diversification across asset classes, across you know, types of investments is, is really, really important. So understanding where you're at in that, in that kind of spectrum is, is really going to drive a lot of the decisions you're making. Yeah. I mean, I had somebody on the show last week. I had a conversation with them and that kind of wealth creation versus preservation. You just, you really 
it's very hard to get to that 10 million plus range unless you have some type of operating company or you take a, a massive allocation risk towards an, a specific product or, or investment. It's just very hard to get there on income alone or a salary. So it's a, it's a great premise. And I think it's super interesting to think through like the, the decision-making process that some of these folks make. You can disagree or agree, but I, I do think there's commonalities there. Well, Ben, I want to thank you so much for coming on, man. This has been great. If people listening are interested in learning more about your firm, the investment opportunities, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Our podcast is a great way to just get to know us and our thinking a little bit more, invest like a billionaire, uh, thebillionairepodcast.com. And we have our private equity firm, which is Aspen Funds, aspenfunds.us. And you can sign up for our investor club and get notified of potential future opportunities. Awesome. And please do leave a comment, a rating, let us know your favorite part of this conversation. And Ben, a question we ask folks that come on the show, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? Yeah, for me, it would definitely be just meditation and just spiritually connecting in my relationship with God and reading reading the Bible every day is what I do in the morning with a cup of coffee for an hour. And that's centers me, gets me in a good place, headspace, just to be able to make good decisions and reduce all the noise that's going on. I have four little kids, so there's there's a lot of noise. <laughs> that's a lot of chaos right there. Well, awesome. Thank you for sharing. And best of luck with everything. I look forward to staying in touch. I'll definitely ping you next time I'm in Kansas City. Always fun to get together in person. And yeah, we'll have to do another kind of follow-up episode to see what we got right and wrong. <laughs> yeah, we, I, I love that. That'd be fun. As we, as we navigate through this. But thanks again for joining us, man. Take care. All right, thanks. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.